Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Welcome from me this morning. My name is Phil, if we've not met before, and it's good to be here together. Because of um, One Voice last weekend and because it's been the summer holidays, I feel like there are some people I've not laid eyes on for a while, so it's great to see you. Welcome. It's really good to be together, isn't it, at the start of, can you believe, September. Amazing. Amazing. Listen, I've got one question to ask before I start this morning, and it's this. Just to think about, what do you think is the wisest thing that God has done? What do you think the wisest thing is that God has done? We're not going to ask for answers this minute, but you know, we were singing this morning, and Sharon was leading us in Psalm 103, and it talks about the goodness of God and his creation, and Woody read to us Psalm 100 and talks about us all being God's children, and he made us, and he takes care of us. Yeah. Is that the wisest thing God's done? I wonder. So hold that thought. I wonder what the wisest thing is that God has done. We're continuing in our um, series at the moment in the uh, letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, the letters to the Ephesians, and we're going to land today in chapter 3. So if you can turn to chapter 3 of Ephesians in your Bible, that's going to really help us this morning as we delve into the word together. And um, before we read scripture this morning, we're going we're gonna to set um, what I want to say in just a little bit of context, because I think context is always helpful to us, isn't it? So we're going we're gonna to do that as well. So can we have a look at our slide, Jim, which tells us all about Paul? So because Paul is a man, a man who wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, but Paul is a man who had a story. And it wasn't a story just like our story. Our stories are different, but he was nonetheless a man with a story. He wasn't a fictional character in a book called the Bible that has no bearing whatsoever on our life today. He was a guy who grew up and did stuff, just like all of us. So this is Paul's story. Paul was was born in a town called Tarsus, but he was raised and educated in Jerusalem. So anyone who's been to school... Not quite everyone, okay, well, lots of us here have been to school, it turns out, and so we're a bit like Paul, we've been educated. It seems actually that Paul was a bit of a bright spark when he was young, because because he was chosen to train as a Pharisee in the city of Jerusalem under the leading rabbi whose name was Gamaliel, and Paul, in his teenage years, was a Pharisee trainee. He was on the Pharisee trainee scheme. And uh, that's where he spent lots of his years studying the law, studying the Bible, the Torah particularly, the first books of the Bible as it was written. But that was what his growing up years looked like. We don't read in scripture that Paul encountered Jesus during Jesus' years of ministry. We don't read that specifically. But it's likely that Paul was around in Jerusalem at that time. And we reckon Paul was maybe a little bit younger than Jesus, but not not much. And if Paul was a leading Pharisee and Jesus was doing his stuff, it's very unlikely that Paul wouldn't have known about Jesus and might even have seen Jesus. We don't see that recorded, but I think it's very likely. In Paul's mid to late 20s, so if anyone here has been in their mid to late 20s, (laughs) I'm still claiming it. That's how old Paul was when Jesus died 
and was raised to life. There was a commotion in Jerusalem because Jesus was crucified and then three days later his body was gone. And his followers said he's been raised to life. Paul was in his late 20s. About a year after that, Paul was Christian chasing, not in a good way. Paul was fiercely opposed to the teaching of Jesus. There was a man named Stephen, who was the deacon in the church in Jerusalem, and he was preaching about Jesus, and the Pharisees were so whipped up in a frenzy about this that Stephen was stoned to death. And the scriptures tell us that as Stephen was stoned to death, Paul was looking on, holding everyone's coats. Paul was there. He was an accomplice to the murder of Stephen. Paul was nearly 30 years of age, something like that, when his life was changed. And that's how old he was when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul was on his way to to persecute Christians, to have them thrown into prison. And Jesus appeared to him, not on the earth, but from heaven. And he was 30 years of age or thereabouts and had this amazing encounter with Jesus. Who's been 30 years of age in here today? Yeah, okay. Many of us have been 30 years of age. Okay. There's, there's then a period of about 13 years or so where we don't know the day-to-day of Paul's life. But we do know that he'd had this encounter with Jesus and that he was given some time aside, some time out, in order that he could be ready to preach this message of Jesus to the rest of the world. And therefore, it's not until Paul is in his early 40s, who's been in their early 40s? Yeah, you see, the hands are getting a bit thinner. <laughs> Someone not admitting the truth. Um, Paul goes on his first missionary journey. By the time Paul is in his late 40s, yeah, okay, still some people in here in their late 40s, Paul is on his third missionary journey, and while he's on his third missionary journey, he visits the city of Ephesus. And actually, he spends about three years in Ephesus, and he's teaching and preaching about Jesus to this young, fledgling church that is growing up in the city of Ephesus. And then it's not until Paul is in his late 50s. Late 50s. <laughs> yeah, late 50s. He's got to be 59 and a half or older. Yeah. <laughs> but Paul is in his late 50s. And he's writing the letter that we've been reading on our Sunday mornings. And he's been writing the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's probably something like seven to ten years since he was there in person. But he's writing to this church who he was part of founding the church, setting in elders into the church, loving the church, caring for the church. And seven to ten years later, he is uh, writing to the church to express his heart towards them. Now, I think that backstory, I know it's taken us a few minutes. I think it's quite helpful this morning in understanding what Paul wants to say to the church in Ephesus as we read Ephesians chapter 3. And just to uh, give us a bit of a recap of the story so far in the book of Ephesians, not everything he said so far, but a few edited highlights. So chapter 1, Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus. Remember this bit, don't we? And uh, he assures them that they're blessed by God, that they know his grace, that they know God's kindness, and that they figure in God's plan to bring all things under the authority of Christ. Then in chapter 2, Paul reminds them that all people are born spiritually dead. 
and that God loves the world so much that he gives people life when they are in Christ. In Christ, if you remember, is Paul's little buzz phrase for being a Christian. That's the phrase he uses. Those who are in Christ are his church. They are his masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus, the church, the masterpiece of of, of God. And um, this is all about God's grace. It's not about any favour that people have earned. It's not doing things out of a sense of religious duty and getting it right enough that we've earned our way towards God. It's not that at all. It's like everyone's dead and only Jesus gives life. And that's the message that Paul preaches. It's the same for all people, whether they are born a Jew or whether they are born a Gentile. A Jew is somebody who is Jewish. A Gentile is somebody who's not a Jew. Dead easy to remember. God's message of salvation is for all people. And therefore, we are no longer strangers, but we are family. We are a house built on strong foundations, carefully joined together, a holy temple for the Lord. And I don't know if you remember that when I spoke a little bit about the end of chapter 2, I skipped chapter 3, because it was just a little bit in the way at the time, and went straight on to chapter 4, because Paul is saying, look, because this is who you are, Because of all that Jesus has done, start of chapter 4, this is therefore how you're to live. This is therefore how you're to love one another. And that's a quick recap as to where we've got to in the book of Ephesians so far. Ephesians chapter 3 is the chapter where Paul goes off on a bit of a tangent. It's a great tangent, and we're going to look at it today. It's It's a bit of a turning point in the letter where Paul stops talking to his readers about all that God has done stops talking to his readers specifically about who they are, and he says, look, in the light of that, this is then who you're to be. This is, this is what the called out people of God, this is how they behave, this is, this is what we do. These are the gifts that God has given to the church. So it's a bit of a turning point in the letter. It uh, gives us, later on in the book of Ephesians, um, how we're to live in the truth of the first part of the book, how to live that out in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces and in society. Okay, so we've got all that bit to come in the next few weeks. So let's, um, let's read Ephesians chapter 3. Just as I start to read this, Paul interrupts himself twice. Okay, this is a very... Um, it, it's written very conversationally. Yeah? And it's probably likely because someone else is doing the writing and Paul is doing the speaking when this, was, uh, when this letter was written. And so as Paul is dictating the letter, he's like, ah, must just say this. And this is what chapter 3 of Ephesians is all about. So here we are. Here's Paul, verse 1. When I think of all this, remember those words, we're going to come back to them later. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles, as I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now, by his Spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles 
and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I am suffering for you, so you should feel honoured. When I think of all this, this is him getting back to what he was thinking about at the start of the chapter. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will go down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how high, how, sorry, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will make complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now, all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That is the third chapter of the book of Ephesians on our Sunday morning, so far missing in action, but we're going to look at the third book of Ephesians uh, today. And here's my first title, uh, my first point this morning. It takes all sorts. It takes all sorts. The first thing that Paul does in the third chapter of the book of Ephesians is to interrupt himself. When I think of all this, oh, by the way, is to interrupt himself to remind his readers who he is. And this is not trying, Paul trying to pull rank. This is not Paul saying, don't you know who I am? It's not that at all. But um, it's Paul appreciating that not everyone in the city of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus will have met Paul. Yeah, it's probably seven to ten years since he was there. It's quite likely people have been added to the church in Ephesus who might have heard about Paul, but have never met him in person. They were never there for the three years that he was teaching in Ephesus previously. And they would be strangers to him insofar as they'd never, never previously met. So Paul is really saying here, look, I'm assuming that you've been told, but, but if not, this is who I am. And he's reminding them as to who he is, what he's been called to do, and impressing on them the change that came in Paul's life 
when he met Jesus. So verse 6, turn to Ephesians 3 verse 6. Just consider the transformation in Paul's thinking. So verse 6, it says, This is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Paul had been raised, as we said earlier, an expert in the Jewish law. And you know, the expert of experts in the Jewish law. He would have been raised to, be, to understand that the Jewish people were God's people. And no one else was. What a transformation has come into Paul's life when he's saying, yes, the Jewish people can be God's people, but so can people who are not Jewish as well. And we all can enjoy the riches of our inheritance in God. Verse 8, consider the transformation in Paul's life. Paul says, though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. So we referred earlier to, uh, we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Paul is there, an accomplice to the stoning of Stephen. In uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we're told that Paul is uttering threats and was keen to kill the Lord's followers, zealous to stamp out followers of the way. Again, that is the Acts name given to followers of Jesus. They were followers of the way. This man is now proclaiming Jesus to the non-Jewish world. And he wants to remind the church at Ephesus, this is how I am. And this is the mission that God has given me. And therefore, in chapter 3, Uh, when Paul describes himself as being the the least deserving of all God's people, it would have been a very personal recollection of his past life and the transformation that could not be greater between being a zealous opponent of the church and declaring that the church actually displays God's wisdom to the seen and the unseen world. We don't read this in the book of Acts. We don't read this in Ephesians. But if I had been a man responsible and accomplice to the murder of Christians, who had spent years of my life um, deliberately making life difficult for followers of Jesus, there'd be times I'd be waking up in the night thinking, my life then, I made some big mistakes. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes when we make big mistakes in life, the easiest thing to do is to go and hide. It's not just me, is it? When we make big mistakes in life, the easiest thing to do is to go and hide. But Paul had met Jesus. And Jesus had given him a mission. And Paul was faithful to the mission that Jesus had given him. And you know, for those of us with a past that we would rather forget about, And I'm sure there are things in all our lives that we would rather forget about. Not just me again. Oh, it is just me. It's not just me. Oh, thank you so much, Mandy. It's me and Mandy. Yeah, things in our lives that kind of come back and haunt us in the middle of the night. It's like, ah, I wish I could undo that. Perhaps there's a way of thinking we used to have, which we now know was destructive. 
But Paul's story is the ultimate example of God's restoration. We mustn't write ourselves off because God does not write us off. Paul didn't write off, uh, God didn't write off a man like Paul. Yeah, maybe today we're living a life and we feel that we're living a life far from God. And we need to know today that there is no situation, no life that God is not capable of bringing his restoration into. We mustn't harbour unforgiveness over ourselves or against one another when God has chosen to forgive. And when we look at our past, we mustn't hold ourselves to a different standard than we see demonstrated in Scripture. Our God is a God of restoration. Whatever our story, if we turn in repentance to Christ, we will know his forgiveness. We will know his restoration. We will know a place to fit into his grand design, his masterpiece, the church. And Paul is writing to the church here about God's plan being, first of all, concealed and then revealed. Uh, Verse 3, as I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And Paul goes on to describe what God has revealed to him with, and this is God's plan. That's the phrase he uses. Now you'll know and you'll see from our next slide that Paul has used these words before. And if you've been paying attention in the book of Ephesians, Paul has used the, and this is his plan. He uses it in chapter three, but also in chapter one. And in chapter one and chapter three, if you just look for a moment and compare those two um, little chunks of scripture, you'll see that they they say almost exactly the same thing. So Ephesians one, verse nine, God has now revealed to us his his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfil his own good plan, and this is the plan, at the right time he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul almost repeats himself. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets, and this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body, and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. It's the same plan. (laughs) There isn't a chapter one plan and a chapter three plan. It is the same plan. God is bringing all things together under the authority of Christ. Chapter 3, Paul pads it out a little bit and says, like, not just all things, all people, Jews and Gentiles, all come under the authority of Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 10, and this is the plan, I think we've got a slide for this, Jim. Chapter 3, verse 10, thank you so much, yes. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
Listen, we've just thought right at the beginning this morning, what do you think the wisest thing that God has ever done is? Paul thinks it's this. Paul thinks that God's plan to unite all people, whatever their story, whatever their background, under the authority of Christ, is the wisest thing God has done because it displays the wisdom of God in all of its rich variety to all the unseen rulers in the places we can see and the places we can't see. That little phrase, in all its rich variety, it comes out different ways in different translations. And that's because, actually, in English, we don't really have a word that does the Greek complete justice. And all the words we try to use are still not really quite it, but they're not bad. So besides, in all its rich variety, sometimes the verse is rendered as his manifold wisdom. You know, his, his, his wisdom with, with many, many renderings of it. Or his multifaceted wisdom. It's another phrase you might have heard from a different, a different translation of the Bible. You, you may not know this, but I'm not a fluent Greek speaker. I had a Greek yogurt for my breakfast, so that's, that's got to count for something, hasn't it? But um, there's a Greek word, and it's, and it, um, and it's polopakilos. Okay? And what that means is of different colours. So the original Greek word is talking about this multicoloured, the multicoloured, multi-layered, multifaceted wisdom of God displayed in the church. That's the church, a diverse collection of people from all backgrounds who are in Christ and part of God's family. And if you and I today are in Christ, if we're part of this church, then we are displaying the multifaceted, multicoloured wisdom of God in all its richness and all its diversity. And you know, it's, it's a passive thing. That is to say, when we gather, we don't have to whip it up among us. We don't have to say, right, we're going to end our time now of displaying God's wisdom. No, the church is gathered and the gathered church displays the wisdom of God not just to the watching world, but to everything that we can't see as well. God has called, God himself has called us together to display his wisdom to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We do this each time we gather. That's right. So who are the rulers and the authorities that referred to? Well, uh, Ephesians 2 talks about the, uh, the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. So certainly I think Paul is talking about the devil. But some of, some of the commentators I've been reading over the last couple of weeks would, would, would describe um, the powers of the unseen world as superhuman forces that grow from human institutions and power structures. You know, there are things in the world, aren't there? Ways of thinking, ways of behaving that aren't from God. There are ways which lead to death, and yet they're, they're in culture. Every time the church gathers and displays God's wisdom and God's authority, we're speaking to those. Another commentator said, powers have ordered this present age in such a way as to exacerbate the divisions within humanity. Well, we know that, don't we? 
God confounds them by creating in Christ one unified, multiracial body consisting of formerly divided groups of people. Every time we gather, we're displaying the infinite wisdom of God. That's quite a thought, isn't it? If you were with us uh, last weekend at One Voice, you would have heard uh, David preaching about Jesus building his church. Jesus is still building his church this weekend. I just want to make sure that's clear as well. In Matthew uh, 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. And what Jesus is saying there is the gates of hell can't hold back the church that Jesus is building. That's the essence of it. The gates of hell are not going to hold the growth of the church back. It's not saying that the church is going to be there frightened and whimpering as the gates of hell attack, but in the end, they're not going to quite get through before Jesus returns. It's not that at all. It's, the church is on the offensive. Jesus is building his church, and the gates of hell will not be able to surrender to it. Jesus doesn't need us to build his church but he invites us to. He invites us to be a part of all that he is doing. Yeah, and if we're here together this morning, which we are, then we're part of building the church of Jesus. He's doing the building, but we're co-laborers with him. And as he builds his church, he's displaying the wisdom of God in all its rich variety. He counts us in. He counts us in. There's no further qualification he counts us in. And when God says um, we're counted in, I don't think we should argue with that. No. God says we're counted in. Whatever our story, he's now weaving us together in his multicoloured display, showing off his multifaceted wisdom. Every thread is vital in creating a beautiful new one people. United in faith in Jesus, one king. We read a few weeks ago, Ephesians 4, Paul says, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and living through all. This is unity. And listen, this is not simply unity, um, or or uniformity rather. It's unity, but it's not uniformity. See, I I said that wrong, but you hope I get the gist. It's not unity whereby we suddenly become clones of one another. We suddenly pretend we've not all got different backstories. It's not um, unity whereby we suddenly um, kind of forget everything that is, that is behind us and the, the various character shapings that God has brought into our life and the various giftings he's given us and the passions he's given us. That's all good stuff. The fact is that we can be a diverse group of people, not a uniform group of people, but knowing unity because of what Jesus has done among us. We're individuals with our own stories. We are people with various life experiences. As we found out this morning, we're not all people of the same age. We're from different nations, but we are all counted in. And therefore, if God counts us in, we should count ourselves in too. For someone who is following Jesus... Counting ourselves out is not an option that we find in Scripture. 
So here's my third and final point. Let's count ourselves in. So we've been looking at Paul's letters to the Colossians earlier in the year and Ephesians now. And Paul's major themes in these letters are for God's people to know who they are and to fully count themselves into his purposes. To know deep inside and to live in the truth of what God has revealed to them. My own story is that there was a time when I started to understand with a deeper conviction and a new freshness who I am in Christ and who we are together as his church. What I'm saying here is I, I believe in continual revelation. We're not saved and therefore know everything or understand everything. But we are saved and God will still reveal himself to us and reveal his purposes to us. So there was a time in my life that I saw with fresh eyes the wisdom of God in joining together diverse groups of people who follow Jesus into local expressions of his church like this one. And to me, the idea of seeing and being part of a local church full of counted-in people is something that made my heart leap, and it still does. Being a group of a, part of a group of people who are know we're counted in, know that we are um, confident of who we are in Christ, and are determined to spread um, God's love to whatever community we find round about us. And I'm convinced that such an expression of the church locally is a thing of beauty. It's a beautiful thing. We've made a start. I would love us to be a thing of beauty together for the glory of God in this town. People confident in who we are. People confident in the truth that God has revealed to us. People confident enough that the message of Jesus doesn't stay in these four walls, but is part of our day-to-day among our neighbours and in our schools and workplaces and wherever we find ourselves during the week. A beauty that's among us that's cherished by us. It's beautiful. Oh, we're going to work hard at maintaining the beauty of all that Christ has put in us, in his church. Knowing that we together are a means of grace to those in our communities who don't yet know Jesus. Jesus is building his church here in Market Harbour. And would we all be ready to see afresh who we are in Christ, who we are together, and the means of God's grace that together we are to this town. And you know, the start of a new term, such as where we find ourselves landing this weekend, first weekend in September, it does feel like a great moment to recommit ourselves to counting ourselves in to Jesus' building of his church. And we often find at this time of year that we're settling into new rhythms of life. 
new things going on with school terms and sometimes in work and um, summer holidays are over. Okay, we keep going. What's next? Christmas. But what a good time to take stock. Are we ready to count ourselves into the life of the church? Are we ready to count ourselves into being part of a life group? We've prayed for our life group leaders this, uh, this morning. Small groups which give each other the chance to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to care practically for one another. Should we count ourselves in? For those in our youth, being part of the new youth life group, there is no minimum age on being counted in. We're in a new season. Just count ourselves in. And church, for those of us who are not in youth anymore, let's commit ourselves to encouraging our young people and to praying for their leaders. What about our times of prayer? We're going to count ourselves in when the church gathers together to pray, as we're doing this Wednesday night at half past seven. Are we going to commit ourselves to praying for one another? We're going to commit ourselves to praying for family stop. We're going to commit ourselves to praying for our leaders, for those leading our life groups, for those in our life group. Are we going to commit ourselves to serving the Church of Jesus? Next week, Steve Clark's going to say a little bit more about um, our plans to um, increase how we're able to serve one another and serve the town together. But very simply, we need folk to serve in every area of church life. In fact, everything we're doing at the moment, we need a couple of people for. We're a couple of people lighting everything. And um, that's where we find ourselves. And uh, serving as a means of demonstrating our love for the church that Jesus is building. Are we going to count ourselves in? If we're already a follower of Jesus, but not yet a member of this local church, we're going to be running our rock solid sessions during this autumn. So these are sessions for people who are wanting to join us, where we just lay out our foundations of personal faith so that people joining the church, we're all on the same page, we're all joined up. We know where we're going together. Are we going to count ourselves in? Jesus is building this church, which displays the wisdom of God in all its rich variety. Let's count ourselves in together. For those of us inclined to count ourselves out, and I'm just saying this knowing that Sometimes I can feel like that. It's like, oh, really? Because we feel we're not good enough or devoted enough or confident enough or worthy enough or brave enough or clever enough or popular enough. I want to say enough. <laughs> God has counted us in. We can't be counting ourselves out. I want to encourage you instead by reminding us what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, but we have this light shining on our hearts, um, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. Makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. So when we feel that we can't, when we feel we're not good enough, not confident enough, not worthy enough, God says we can. Yes, he does. Thank you. Because Jesus is building his church. 
So here's what I want to finish by saying. Let's head into this new season confidently. Verse 12 of Ephesians 3, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Let's count ourselves in knowing that we each have our own story. We each have our own character. We each have our own gifting because our being joined together displays God's multifaceted wisdom in all its multicoloured splendour. Amen. I'd like to pray. I think we might sing. I know that we're a little bit out of time. It's been that kind of day, but maybe we should sing as we finish. But uh, why don't we stand? I'd just like to pray for us. Father, I want to thank you that by your spirit, you reveal truth to us. Holy Spirit, you say that you have come to to guide us into all truth. And therefore, as we read these letters that Paul has written to to the church, that we know this is truth for us to grasp today, all these years later, in the little town of Market Harbour, that we can know confidently who we are in Christ. We want to declare ourselves, Father, to be counted in people. We want to thank you that, that you know us, you know how we're made. You know that you've placed great treasure in us, but we ourselves are sometimes like fragile clay jars. But you remind us that all of the building is by your power. So Jesus, would you build your church in Market Harbour? Would we demonstrate continually the multifaceted wisdom of God as we gather faithfully week by week, as we count ourselves into your plan and your purposes? We ask for your blessing on us as we do this in this next season ahead. Would this be a season where we see the polishing of the beauty that you've set inside of us? We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.